0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use
1: in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted to have Sam Apple. He's on the faculty at Johns Hopkins, and prior to his arrival at Hopkins, he taught creative writing and journalism at the University of Pennsylvania. He holds a BA in English and creative writing from the University of Michigan, and a master's in fine arts and creative nonfiction from Columbia. He is the author of many books, but most recently, Ravenous, which is about the German biochemist Otto Warburg and new developments in cancer science. Welcome, Sam.
0: Thanks. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah. So... You know, it was really interesting to read this book for multiple reasons, largely because so much of Otto Warburg's research was largely not really discussed over, you know, the last like 30 plus years until this concept of cancer metabolism and looking at the contributions that he made to science. You know, I was telling my husband as I was reading your book that I had no idea that he even existed before I read your book. And yet he had so much to contribute to the field of, you know, chemistry and cancer science and metabolism science, which nowadays has become, you know, has become much more popular with people like Jason Fung and Ben Bickman that are, you know, providing context about the changes that go on with cancer cells. So What got you interested in writing about Otto? He's quite a character and I'm sure, you know, listeners will want to learn more about him, but really, you know, given the fact that he was Jewish in, you know, the the time of Nazi Germany and was able to kind of mitigate and navigate continuing his research despite living in a pretty profoundly challenging time in Germany.
0: Yeah, you know, I really came to Warburg through my interest in metabolism and, Nutrition and you know reading reading the works of uh, a lot of you know popular writers in that area. Gary Taubes in particular was mm-hmm. a, a big influence. So you know what, what really stood out to me as I was reading about these topics was that you know I came across a mention of cancer being linked to obesity and diabetes, and that that really caused me to pause because you know I, I hadn't heard that before. I always thought cancer you know you have unlucky mutations in these oncogenes, or maybe it's caused by Radiation, sun exposure, smoking, but I didn't think about it as being a metabolic disease in any sense. And so I saw a mention of this, and then uh, that mention said in 1923, a German scientist had made a discovery about how cancer cells take up a lot of glucose. So you know, I googled the scientist Otto Warburg again, read just a little bit about his life and the stuff you referenced in Nazi Germany, and you know, I was just blown away. There wasn't that much in English actually. But the little I could find, you know, it's just fascinating. And, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm a writer and I'm always looking for stories and thinking about how I'm going to tell a story. So I was interested in the science first. And then when I had the character Warburg, then I knew like I had at least a magazine article and, you know, eventually it turned into a book. But, you know, he was a way for me to tell the story. But it's ultimately the story about cancer as a metabolic disease that interested me most.
1: So for the benefit of the listeners, let's kind of unpack what makes cancer cells unique based on his research, and which has now been substantiated many years later with greater emphasis and focuses on this really being a metabolic disease as opposed to something that's primarily just genetic in origin.
0: Sure. So Warburg's key discovery, you know, made in 1923, was that cancer cells were taking up enormous amounts of glucose instead of burning it. And the mitochondria, which are often referred to as the power plants of the cell, they were instead using this, what I call as a, a sort of a backup generator, fermentation. And that's a way to basically get energy without using oxygen. It's much less efficient. And it basically splits the glucose in two and basically, you know, quickly turns it into lactic acid and, you know, spits it out of the cell. So it's not a very efficient way to make energy. It was very surprising that cancer cells were doing this, you know, this fermentation. It's the same thing that, you know, microorganisms do that give us all our favorite foods and beer and wine, et cetera. So it was an odd thing to find in cancer science. And really ever since cancer scientists have been debating why cancer cells do this and what causes it to happen. And, you know, Warburg had his own hypotheses and he felt very strongly about them in the end i didn't fully agree with warburg's explanation for why it happened but that mattered less to me than the fact that it does happen and it's fundamental to cancer and as you've already referenced it was completely forgotten about for decades and it's it just blows my mind because it's so fundamental to what cancer is and you know fortunately it's back now and it's you know the last 15 20 years it's there's been an explosion of research. So I'm glad it was rediscovered. And that research has really, you know, led back to this idea, which I explore in the end of my book, that, you know, the way we eat and how that changes our hormonal environment, particularly insulin, may be the real answer to this mystery that Warburg, you know, first discovered.
1: It's really fascinating. I think what I also found really intriguing was that the Germans, as a population of scientists, were very concerned about the exposure to pollutants and, you know, the quality of food additives and things that they believed kind of fervently were contributing to cancer. And so for me to think about, you know, World War II timeframe that there were scientists and a country that was largely very focused, very proactive about the concern about toxins in our environment and our food and personal care products is really surprising because I feel like in many ways, And you reference this in your book, when you talk about Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, that was really like the beginning of people kind of taking these things much more seriously, that the role of things we're exposed to in our environment can be toxins that can make us more susceptible to you know uh developing metabolic diseases and cancer and so i found that really interesting that this overfed state in the context of looking at toxin exposure could also be a huge contributor and that they were talking about this so many years before i even recall ever seeing anything in the research from the united states
0: yeah it's strange how far ahead the nazis were on cancer it's a little unsettling yeah. but it makes sense in the historical concept. You know, the Nazis inherited a German scientific establishment that was on top of the world. And, you know, they were very focused on cancer. Germany was focused on cancer before the Nazis came to power and that was maintained. And so, you know, for all the monstrous things they did, their researchers, you know, including Warburg, who worked under the Nazis, continued to focus on cancer and made important discoveries and particularly in the realm of, you know, environmental carcinogens, and, you know, they were decades ahead about understanding the smoking cancer link. So it is true that, um, you know, German science continued in some areas throughout the Nazi years. But, you know, as I point out in the book, that even in this context, there was something sort of, you know, profoundly creepy about, about the way the Nazis were going at it, you know, because in their minds, you know, there was no sympathy for cancer sufferers. Cancer was an impurity in these things that got into our food were impurities. And that, you know, in a way was the entire Nazi project was eliminating impurities of every kind. So, you know, they managed to make some progress on cancer, but it was always through a sort of dark ideology.
1: It's very, very interesting to me. And, and you know, I'm someone that's of German descent and, you know, talking to my grandmother, my grandparents had emigrated to the United States way before that time frame, but talking to them about how unique the culture is that, you know, this purification kind of preoccupation, there's no other way to put it, how that kind of created the environment where there could be this concern for weeding out, you know, diseases and disorders and, you know, obviously cancer being one of them. Now, I thought it was really interesting also, you know, as someone who's trained, you know, I'm primary care trained, although I never worked in primary care as a nurse practitioner I was also really impressed about how proactive Germany was about screening for certain types of cancers, both talking about breast cancer exams, which was way ahead of the curve and cancer counseling centers. I mean, this is really unusual. Like it's something that's not oftentimes discussed, but they were very proactive about trying to be preventative focused as opposed to reactive, which is really uh, largely what we see here in the United States. We're very Uh, reactive to diseases and disorders instead of being proactive, which I think is part of our problem for why we have so much metabolic disease right now.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, I want, you know, for listeners who are interested in this, I want to mention the historian Robert Proctor at Stanford wrote a book called The Nazi War on Cancer. And it's, you know, a really critical source for my understanding of these topics. And he He goes into great detail on these prevention programs and, you know, the Nazis really introduced widespread screening for the first time. So it's really fascinating. And, um, you know, I I tried to understand it in the historical context of the Germans making tremendous progress, you know, before the Nazis against infectious diseases and and really figuring out that microorganisms were responsible, you know, figuring out which microorganisms cause which disease. And it, it was part of this flourishing of German science that was, really changing the world. But cancer was the one disease they couldn't make progress against. And, you know, so they really, you know, in the early 20th century, really put a tremendous amount of effort into understanding it and trying to treat and prevent it. And, you know, Warburg was part of that story, but there are many other important scientists, you know, among the many tragedies of the Nazi era is that, you know, all that work was disrupted ultimately, you know, by the Nazis by the end. And then in the postwar period, you know, all the German science was lost. So, you know, that definitely set cancer science back. And it was probably part of the reason, it, you know, it got lost in the post-war years.
1: So for listeners that are not familiar with what the focus was during this time period, what happened in the 1950s that shifted a lot of the medical and research focus in another direction, looking at an ideology for why cancer's developed. And this is, you know, this is a massive shift. I mean, a a complete departure from this kind of metabolism focused ideology to more genetically mediated.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were always these competing sort of theories about cancer in the pre-war era. You know, Warburg and his followers focused on the metabolic changes, other researchers, interested in how viruses might cause cancer. And then in the post-war period, you have in the 1950s, the discovery of the structure of DNA, you know, Watson and Crick and Franklin. And, um, you know, that sets in motion a series of, you know, it doesn't happen all at once, but, you know, over the next two decades, you know, genetics sort of comes into center stage in cancer research, particularly in the mid-1970s when scientists are first able to identify specific genes, human genes, that get mutated and cause cancer. These are the oncogenes. And and once that's discovered, it's really, you know, everything is genetic and still is largely to this day. Uh, You know, as I've mentioned, it's changing. But, you know, at that point, you know, that was called like, you know, molecular biology, the new molecular biology and the kind of stuff Warburg discovered how a cell takes up glucose and processes it. That was old world biochemistry. Like, why would you be interested in stuff that was done in the early 20th century when you could be studying modern genetics? I mean, it seemed backward, you know, as one cancer scientist put it to me. It was like, you know, we wanted to do the cool stuff. (laughs) We didn't want to deal with like Warburg and stuff. So I literally, you know, found these stories of people like taking their Warburg equipment, you know, this metabolism equipment, and throwing it in the trash. So, you know, it was just gone, you know, and science swings, you know, it's a pendulum. And, you know, it, it is to some extent natural, but the extent to which it happened is, is pretty shocking. And, you know, one of the aspects of it, I think that which makes it so surprising is that even as everybody was abandoning metabolism, this new cancer screening test, this uh, PET scan, which basically, you know, looks, you know, you make the glucose radioactive and then look where it's being taken up in the body and that's where you have cancer, this diagnostic test, you know, so in a way like cancer metabolism was staring everybody in the face and yet it wasn't being studied at all.
1: I know. And I almost think we shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, I trained at a big research institution and I think sometimes we like to make things more complicated than it needs to be and and really getting back to basics. And so I'm grateful for the contributions that you're making, you know, Gary, who I've had the pleasure of having on the podcast as well, you know, asking the tough questions and asking them from different angles than medical professionals are doing, you know, kind of thinking outside the box, much like I always say that I'm grateful for their people like you know, Gary Feldman, who talks about, you know, looking at cholesterol from a different way. And I'm like, you know, thank goodness for the engineers, because they're giving us different ways of looking at different problems. And so, you know, when we're thinking about cancer treatment, one of the things that I found really interesting in the book was the use of mustard gas. You know, this is kind of pivoting off what we're talking about. And I found it really interesting that it actually was found to prevent rapidly dividing cells from replicating their DNA. And so, Mustard gas was used, you know, during, I believe, World War I and World War II and not realizing that ultimately it turned out that it could actually be used for metabolic therapies and towards certain types of cancers, I thought was really interesting. So people really thinking outside the box and forcing us to consider ulterior uses of a lot of things that are, you know, used in wartime or drugs that are used in wartime for other reasons.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, a lot of like, yeah, you know, as you referenced it, it was really an accident that they discovered that, you know, mustard therapy had its power and, you know, and then it became sort of, you know, the first chemotherapy, you know, which was thought to just be a cellular poison. But, you know, decades later, we sort of came to understand how many of these chemotherapies work. They are actually metabolic drugs in terms of, you know, disrupting metabolic processes. So, you know, it's another way that it's kind of amazing that metabolism was lost because the drugs that work are <laughs> metabolism drugs in the broadest sense.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, when we think about the role of other things in our environment that can be contributory or problematic for, you know, the influence of changes to our soil is one example, you know, the role of nitrogen. I'm not sure how many listeners really appreciate the importance of nitrogen and how the changes in soil accumulation have really impacted the way, the types of food that are grown, the nutrient density or lack thereof. What I found interesting was, you know, really looking at having to import, you know, nitrates from, I believe it was Chile yeah, uh, in order to beef up the soil, which was, you know, largely depleted from nitrogen and how nitrogen can be really critically important for, you know, health and the nutrient, as I said, nutrient density of a lot of the foods that we're consuming.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important. I mean, at the most basic level, but also, you know, I wanted to include that story because, you know, I wanted to put the emphasis on the fertilizer, you know, you can think of sometimes the cancer cells called the seed and sometimes the place in the body that it grows is referred to as the soil and cancer scientists talk about the seed and the soil. But I wanted to talk about the seed, the soil and the fertilizer, like what causes the cancer cell to grow? And, you know, that's how I sort of transitioned into the insulin conversation.
1: So let's unpack the insulin conversation. You know, I've had the great honor of being able to connect with, you know, some of the biggest insulin uh, researchers that are out there, you know, not only medical researchers, but also medical professionals. And so I'm a fervent believer in that insulin is driving so much of the metabolic disease that we are currently seeing. So let's talk about that, you know, this whole insulin model, which there are definitely individuals that are out there that don't embrace this idea or this concept, but for many of us, it really just intrinsically makes common sense when you unpack all of that, what it represents.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I could have written in theory about insulin and many other diseases because it's so connected to so many of these chronic diseases, but, you know, I think the cancer insulin connection is less well-known than uh, some of the others. So that was part of the reason I wanted to explore it. And, I think that, you know, people that are, you know, not particularly nervous about diabetes, maybe they'll wake up a little <laughs> more, and you know, and they understand that cancer is a part of this story as well. I mean, you should be nervous about diabetes. It's, it's a massive problem, but I, I think that, you know, the cancer insulin connection can help people, you know, become more aware of how serious this is. And as I mentioned before that, you know, Warburg discovered how cancer cell ends up overeating glucose. So, you know, insulin should immediately be a suspect because insulin you know tells our, our cells to take up glucose but at the time he made this discovery insulin it actually had been discovered almost at exactly the same time but you know nobody knew anything about insulin it was only you know in the late 60s when they even began to be able to measure insulin in our blood so there was no way really to make the connection between insulin and the overeating glucose of a cancer cell at the time but now when we understand what insulin does, You can start to put the pieces together and start to understand that when you have insulin at, you know, extremely high levels, 50 times the normal level in the case of hyperinsulinemia, it's instructing a cell to, you know, take up more and more glucose. Now, some cells might be resistant to it, but cancer cells actually get more insulin receptors and tend to have mutations in the very enzymes that respond to insulin. So they are hyper responsive to insulin. And if you give them this, insulin stimulus it you know it, it's powerful growth stimulant for you know potentially microscopic cancer that might not otherwise be a threat It really all came together in the early you know 21st century when they started to do the sequencing of cancer cells and they could see where the mutations were most common the most common ones were in the very enzymes that respond to insulin and you know there's just a, a tremendous amount of evidence so, you know, as I began to unpack that, you know, the, the next question that came up is, okay, well, what causes our insulin to get out of control? And that of course comes back to diet.
1: Yeah. And I think for anyone who was listening, that's saying, well, I don't need to be concerned about this. I remind people that the latest statistic I read was that 88% of Americans are metabolically inflexible and unhealthy. So that means there's a very small percentage of Americans that are not insulin resistant, not overweight, not obese, and I think when you read statistics, like there were some that I wrote down while I was reading, one of them was that in 2014, the CDC said 600,000 Americans were diagnosed with body fat related cancers. That's yeah. in 2014. That's seven years ago. I'm sure that rate is probably not improving. In fact, it's probably going up. So if anyone's listening and is thinking I'm not susceptible, statistically you very likely are. And, and I like to remind Men and women, you need to know your numbers. You need to know what your fasting insulin is. You need to ask your healthcare professional, even if they don't know how to interpret it, you need to know those numbers. I cannot tell you how many women come to me and they'll tell me I'm stuck. I can't lose weight. I'm weight loss resistant. And we do a fasting insulin and it's 20. And I remind them, I mean, that's like five times more than what it should be or four times more than what it should be. So it's important for us to understand that interrelationship with being overfed hyperplastic, you know, these cells that, you know, insulin instructs the cells to get bigger. And, you know, in, in terms of what that represents for upping your likelihood of developing cancer, it's fairly significant. And, and I think that, you know, you touched the nail on the head when you mentioned that cancer cells have more insulin receptors and they're overexpressed. So, you know, cancer cells really thrive on glucose and carbohydrates. And throughout your book, you're identifying researchers in the 1920s as one example, identified that these cancer cells, had their uptake of glucose is is significant and why we aren't speaking to our patients more proactively. And obviously I'm not an oncologist, and I'm not going to assume that every oncologist isn't having this conversation, but why we're not being more proactive, starting from a primary care base level to having these discussions with patients, yeah. really educating them about their macros or their food intake, to me, is astounding.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's starting to change slowly, but I don't think many oncologists are having these conversations. And I've asked, you know, them why, or I've asked those who are studying this why more aren't studying it. And you know, the explanation given is that. You know, everybody's in their own silo. The endocrinologists are in one area, the oncologists are in another. And they're not speaking to each other. They're not necessarily looking at the same research. And um, you know, I think we're starting to see a little bit of change, but you know, I, I completely agree with everything you said, and you know, one Key fact, you know, just to build on what you said, is that you know your glucose might look normal for many, many years, even as your insulin is elevated, because that extra insulin is actually keeping the glucose under control. So you have no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. And you know, people store body fat in different ways. You know, I was in my early 30s; I had all the signs of insulin resistance, and I'm you know 100% sure I had it, even though I didn't actually directly test my insulin. But I had elevated triglycerides and. People would say, oh, you're not overweight, but, you know, you could actually see, Mm -hmm. you know, the way I was carrying my weight on my face and things. But, you know, in in some ways, being able to store more fat subcutaneously under your skin around your limbs is actually an advantage. In my family, you go, you know, straight to diabetes, straight to insulin resistance without much storage. So being thin is not really protective in the way people think. You have to be metabolically healthy, not just, you know, thinner than average or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think those are really important points.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the practical application is always, you know, when I bring guests on, you know, for anyone that's listening, it's like, okay, what's the how do we unpack the practical implications of your book and your message? And a lot of it is saying, you know, get informed, ask for these tests. It's really critically important. You kind of touched on that metabolic syndrome of, you know, high triglycerides, low HDL, sometimes high LDL, elevated blood glucose, but it can start with elevated insulin. That's usually the first biomarker. In fact, I know my buddies at low carb MD, you know, Tro and Brian, we talk a lot about this, that, you know, got to test that fasting insulin. So for everyone that's listening, test your fasting insulin, know what that number is because, you know, your hemoglobin A1C may not look all that bad, which is a 90 day snapshot. Your fasting blood sugar may not look all that bad. You know, it harkens back to, you know, my father-in-law, who was a wonderful man was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and he was treated at Hopkins, you know, leading renowned oncology center. And that poor man, after he had his esophagus removed and, you know, spent a lot of time in radiation and surgery and just really suffered quite a bit. I remember him saying to me, Cynthia, all they want me to do is to drink Insure. And it makes me cringe when I think about what we know now and how many oncology patients or people who are chronically ill are being instructed to drink what is essentially high fructose corn syrup and you know, a lot of food additives, which we know are, are not beneficial. Now, we had touched on Gary Tobe's research and I know that you're obviously well familiar with him as well. Another amazing science writer, And he talks a lot about the role of fructose. So I touched on high fructose corn syrup, but let's talk a little bit, or at least touch on like what fructose does differently in our body than other types of sugar. Now people will make the argument that fructose is, you know, we find fructose in fruit. And I always say, well, yes, we do, but high fructose corn syrup is an entirely different, literally animal. It's something that's created in a lab. We know it's process very differently. It's highly toxic, but let's at least touch on that because that's another thing. If you're doing nothing else, get your fasting insulin checked, read food labels because high fructose corn syrup is in just about everything. And you want to avoid this because it's a particularly toxic ingredient.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. I was interested in, you know, once I sort of came to the conclusion that, that insulin was, you know, hyperinsulinemia elevated insulin is a key driver of cancer. You know, the next Question I wanted to answer is, you know, how do we end up with hyperinsulinemia? And, you know, this very simple answer would be that we get overweight, but, you know, it's more complicated than that. And I tried to look back in the history into the 19th century. You have, you know, these societies you know, in the 19th century, and even into the early 20th century, where cancer is extremely rare. And then, uh, you know, they transition to the Western diet and Western lifestyle. And then suddenly you see more obesity, more diabetes, more cancer. So try to look back and see what is it that comes into the diet that starts to set off this trend. And, you know, the most compelling evidence, I think, is that it's the addition of sugar, you know, not all carbohydrates, but sugar in particular, when I say sugar, I don't mean glucose. I mean, I'm referring to sucrose, this sweet white stuff that's half glucose and half fructose. And the fructose seems to be the most metabolically harmful part, or the fructose together with the glucose and the molecule of sucrose. This terminology is a little confusing. <laughs> you know, because when people say, well, how can glucose cause cancer? Because, you know, we have glucose in our blood all the time, but you have to understand that it's this multi step progression, you know, eating sucrose, sugar, having. Fat accumulate because that's what it does. It causes fat to accumulate in, in your liver and around your organs. That will then interrupt insulin's ability to get glucose into your cell. The pancreas will respond by producing even more insulin. You'll put on more weight, develop more insulin resistance, and meanwhile, all that elevated insulin will drive cancer. So that's kind of convoluted, but I like to you know just put out the basic information. But the um, you know at the root of the story is you know fructose as being a part, you know, one half of sugar, which is the part that makes it particularly dangerous, I think, and it seems to be that, you know, when you turn it into this high fructose corn syrup, or when you put sugar, when you refine it and put it into drinks, drinks seem to be worst of all, you cause this fat accumulation, the insulin resistance more rapidly than with glucose alone. So it's, you know, once you're already insulin resistant, you probably have to restrict a lot of carbohydrates, not just sugar, but if you're metabolically healthy to start with, and you just keep out the sugar, you'll probably be in pretty good shape. But unfortunately, as you said, 88% of us are not in that position. So you probably have to restrict more than just sugar, more than just the sucrose. But if you're one of the lucky ones who's really healthy, then yeah, you know, maybe some other carbs are okay.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting how bioindividuality really plays a key role here. I've had the opportunity to wear a continuous glucose monitor since last fall, and it's been fascinating slash depressing being metabolically healthy. And anytime it doesn't matter if it's, you know, my son's birthday is today. And so we went out for a celebration. He wanted Mexican food and I ate, you know, sauteed shrimp and had peppers and onions. And I had a couple chips last night and I was telling my husband, I was like, I'm metabolically healthy. And my blood sugar is usually really well controlled all the time. And my insulin's too. So, I mean, I'm very metabolically flexible. And a handful of chips, I mean, my blood sugar stayed elevated for hours and it was fascinating. And so, you know, you think about the context that most of us that are consuming sugar, sweetened beverages that are maybe indulging in sweets every day, maybe not making the best food choices, eating a lot of highly processed foods, most of us, and I would imagine most middle-aged individuals, males and females are probably in this position where our blood sugar is not well controlled. And yet we, these little subtleties, you know, you gain a pound or two every year, maybe your sleep isn't as good. What are some of the changes that you made in your personal life based on your research for this book? Cause I would imagine this book probably took several years to write And I always love connecting with writers and saying, you know, what changed about your personal choices while you were writing this book or after you wrote this book? Because once you see, you can't unsee, you know, that's the challenge of those of us that, you know, maybe, you know, the 12%, it's like, you know, we're a little bit more attuned to what's changing in, in, you know, the general population and how we don't want to mimic that in our own personal lives.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean... Even before starting this book, I, you know, had grown interested in sort of low-carbohydrate nutrition, but I wasn't especially strict. And, and the more research I did and the more I learned, the more strict I became. You know, it, it's hard not to when you're, you're reading these studies. And, um, you know, with cancer, there, you know, I like to point out there are no guarantees. Some cancers not related to insulin. Some are unlucky mutations. So I don't think that I can guarantee that I'm ever going to get cancer by, by following this diet, but I do think that it can increase, you know, my chances and give me a better chance at preventing disease. So, you know, I've been more careful about sugar in, in particular, ever since I'm doing this research, uh, Lewis Cantley, one of the most distinguished cancer researchers in the country, you know, I asked him, This question, he just says sugar scares me, and and -hmm. that's you know the more you learn, the scarier it looks. So I've eliminated almost all sugar. You know, my kids get annoyed with me, and sometimes like try to shove a cupcake in my (laughs) mouth. So you know, I'm not perfect with it, but I try. And you know, I think there's an optimistic message in all this. You know, for all the scariness, like you know, I had the worst diet in the world. I used to walk around like in my 20s, living alone in New York with like a bag of white bread and like taste, you know, drinking Coke and everything. So, you know, I think it's wonderful that, you know, you can turn it around just by making these, you know, I don't want to call it simple. It's hard to change your diet, but you know, it's not all gloom. Like, you know, you have these just hundreds and thousands of stories online of people changing their lives and reversing their type two diabetes by making these changes. So I'm inspired and hopeful that, you know, more people will will start to do this. I hope after, you know, reading my book and other books on similar topics.
1: Yeah. I think that's the greatest hope is that, you know, my platform on this podcast is to bring on, you know, interesting individuals in the literary world and medicine and research to be able to, to take, you know tangential concepts and be able to apply them to real life. Now for the benefits of listeners who may not be as familiar with, with some of the lifestyle related cancers, the cancers that are more likely, you know, based on the research to develop, if you are overfed eating far too often, not practicing intermittent fasting or low carb, or, you know, a less processed diet, for the benefits of listeners, let's at least touch on the cancers that we know are associated with being in this overfed, high insulin state.
0: Sure. Uh, you have colon cancer, endometrial cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer. It looks more compelling, I think, postmenopause, but I think altogether, um, the evidence, I think the evidence is quite strong with prostate cancer, although that's a little, you know, it's considered less strong than the other evidence. But if you added in prostate cancer, the number you mentioned, that 600,000 number, they didn't include prostate cancer in that. So it would be vastly higher. So, you know, it's just across the board, the most deadly cancers tend to be these ones that are linked to obesity and elevated insulin. Uh, and,
1: And I think, you know, we need to, we meaning healthcare professionals need to be more proactive. I know that my whole background's in ER medicine and cardiology. And so I saw, I mean, evidence of metabolic disease every single day. And it was in people as young as 30, all the way up to 80. And the one thing that was fairly consistent for me was, you know, watching this interrelationship between inflammation and food choices and eating more frequently or too frequently. You know, we used to tell our patients and, you know, I trained in the 1990s, trained at a big research institution and We used to tell our patients that you need to eat snacks and mini meals and you need to stoke your metabolism. And yet I cringe when I think about that now, because no one should be eating snacks. I think about anytime I travel, you know, obviously most of us haven't been traveling as much as we did pre-pandemic, but anytime I'm in the airport now or traveling with my family trying to explain to my kids, like you're teenagers. Now there is no need to snack. And if you're hungry in between meals, it means you didn't put your you know, protein and your healthy fats together in the right way and non-starchy vegetables. And then they cringe when they hear me say that, but the point of, of why, you know, I think it's important. I thought it was so important to bring you on was just to, to create growing awareness that these lifestyle choices really do have bearing on our health and our longevity and the quality of life that we lead. I think it's really important for people to understand that it doesn't just happen to us. It's, you know, there are catastrophic, horrific things that happen that we have no control over, but a lot of these lifestyle choices do have a long-term impact on our health, whether it's positively or negatively.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the COVID outbreak is another reminder, you know, how important metabolism is, because, you know, if you're not metabolically healthy, you're at greater risk for COVID complications. So it's really, you know, so many different conditions. You know, you mentioned Ben Bickman before, you know, he's written this wonderful book, which covers all the different conditions. I just focused on cancer and, you know, Jason Fung and and others. So, you know, it's just so important. And, you know, one thing I think is also encouraging that, uh, you know, people tend to think, oh, you have to be wealthy to to eat this way, but I think it's really not true. I mean, I eat so many eggs, and they're relatively cheap. <laughs> I think it's doable on a budget, and you know, we just need to convince people that this is a healthy way to live.
1: Absolutely, and I remind people, you buy the best protein that your budget permits, and if it's conventional beef that you purchase, the only real difference, you know, based on the research I have done between conventional, like food lot beef, is one example versus grass fed. Grass finished beef is the omega 3 to omega 6 profile. So you're really talking about the differences between different types of fatty acids. And I would argue that, you know, feedlot conventionally raised animals are going to be a better choice than eating a Big Mac. Or a chicken nugget. Like I always say, the more processed it is, the less benefit it is to your health. Although I'm also a realist. I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't eat out in restaurants on occasion. And sometimes I do get stuck paces and I may have to resort to, you know, having a protein bar, which, you know, I love that some of the low carb community. And I always think about one person in particular calls them carbohydrate bars, you know, to remind people that they're generally not protein dense. They're usually pretty carbohydrate dense, you know, Ken Berry is, usually on the pulpit talking about that quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I do think it's true that, you know, you can, you know, people say fast food and think it's horrible. But if somebody wants to go low carb and and they eat a lot of fast food and they throw out the bun and don't get the Coke and just, you know, take the burgers and the lettuce, I think they could be, you know, pretty healthy.
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, the concept of good, better, best, you know, really meeting people where they are. So if you're listening and you, you know, love Chick-fil-A or love McDonald's, you can navigate fast food restaurants and make better choices. It doesn't all have to be, you know, this pristine grass-fed steak with organic vegetables. I mean, obviously, you know, we want to get to a point where we're eating less processed food, but there are all sorts of ways to get there.
0: Yeah. I'll make even to make your listeners feel better. I'll make my grand confession is that I, I still have some diet soda here and there. So, you know, it's probably not ideal, but, you know, particularly if you're transitioning between diets, so, you know, for a lot of people that can be a way to do it.
1: Absolutely. And I think all of us, you know, in this, you know, kind of health and wellness space, we all acknowledge, we have our own vices. I've got a penchant for dark chocolate. That's probably my one vice that's left after, Going gluten and dairy free, it cuts out a lot of, of what's available there. So, for the benefit of listeners, what are you working on next? What, are you working on? A new book? Are you? I know that you're still teaching avidly. What's next for you? It's a good question. I'm trying to figure <laughs> that
0: out. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I would like to do another book that covers some of these topics. But you know, I'm teaching full time now at, at Johns Hopkins and the uh, MA in Writing and MA in Science Writing programs. So I don't have that much time right now, but eventually I'd like to, uh, you know, find another Warburg-like character and go at this again from a different
1: angle. Absolutely. What was the one thing about Warburg that was really surprising? I guess not having known much about him, I found him personality-wise to be a little bit of a spectacle. You know, really, I don't know if it was arrogance or just completely being clueless against, you know, what he was living within. He was almost within a bubble that he wasn't paying attention to what was going on in Nazi Germany during World War II.
0: Yeah, he was, you know, a very difficult human being, to put it nicely. He was, you know, one of the most arrogant human beings, I think, of all all time. You know, (laughs) on a scale of one to 10 on arrogance, he rated a 20. You know, one of my favorite stories is, (laughs) He was asked to take a picture with other scientists. And he said he couldn't do it because they were, you know, not at his level and they were all Nobel Prize winners. That's how he viewed the world. You know, it was in many ways a weakness because, you know, he couldn't see his own faults. But it was also, you know, his self-belief was also a strength. He did these bold experiments that other people weren't doing, that other people thought, well, you know, I don't have the right scientific tool. I can't do this. Warburg's attitude was, okay, I'll just go in and invent the tool. And, you know, his father was a brilliant physicist who worked with Einstein and, and Warburg grew up you know, with all these famous German scientists in his childhood home and just assume, well, you know, I'm going to be in the next one too. It was like, assume that he would win a Nobel prize. When he finally won, his response was, well, it's about time, you know, it's about time they gave it to him. So, you know, he really deserved to win it three times based on totally different experiments. Um, just a fascinating character, but, um, you know, not totally sympathetic. Like I was drawn to him in part because he hated the Nazis so much. But the more, you know, and he they would come to his institute and like bang on the door and try to get him to sign papers and he would throw him out of his institute. And I realized over time that, you know, he hated the Nazis, but not necessarily for all the right reasons. You know, what he really couldn't stand is that they dared interrupt him and interrupt his work. He wasn't, you know, a great champion of the Jewish people or of human rights. So he's a very complicated figure, but you know, to me in a way that made it interesting. It wasn't just like a, a simple hero. It was a complicated hero.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's been such a pleasure to connect with you. And I encourage my listeners to check your book out. What is the easiest way to connect with you on social media, your website?
0: Sure. Uh, my website is samapple.com. and on Twitter as uh, where I'm most active, it's at Sam underscore Apple One and Instagram. I'm, I'm new to Instagram, I'm trying to figure it out. It's very confusing. <laughs>
1: A very Uh, different animal for sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: I literally can't like figure out what to click on, but it's at Sam Apple Books. Yeah. And the book is ravenous, Otto Warburg, the Nazis and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection.
1: Well, I really enjoyed your book. And you know, my family was humored. I was sitting in my study, you know, taking notes and reading it, and I found, you know, Otto Warburg to be a fascinating individual. More interesting beyond that was just this role of, you know, cancer science and metabolism and realizing that there was so much incredible research that was being done. And even the early 20th century that I was completely unaware of, despite having a solid science background, I might add. Yeah. But thank you again for connecting with listeners. And hopefully they will be checking out your book and, you know, connecting with you on social media as well.
0: Uh, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the
1: link in the show notes.